Welcome to the Public Morality. It has been well documented that the coronavirus pandemic is changing American way of life. Some changes may be permanent. My guest, Eric Levitz, in his recent piece in New York Magazine contends that such might extend to Republican orthodoxy. In his article entitled, The Coronavirus is Forcing the GOP to Tacitly Admit Its Ideology is Delusional, Levitz writes, Conservative orthodoxy has always been too detached from the reality to command a strict adherence. Levitz writes weekly for New York Magazine, and we welcome him to The Public Morality. Eric Levitz, welcome to The Public Morality. Yeah, thanks for having me. You wrote in your piece for New York Magazine, quote, a theory of government assembled out of the self-affirming delusions of the reactionary rich and seething amnesia-laden nostalgia of white cultural traditionalists is bound to be a poor compass for guiding the ship of state. Explain. Sure. So um, the article is about the, the various ways in which uh, the current coronavirus crisis um, kind of undermines aspects of conservative, American conservative, movement conservative orthodoxy, uh, or at least uh, the ideology that is often preached uh, by conservatives. Um, and a couple elements of that are the kind of one element, which I refer to with the reference to the self-affirming delusions of the reactionary rich, is is the idea of uh, the marketplace as kind of a um, apolitical uh meritocratic arbiter of the value of people's uh, economic contributions so that, you know, the whole reason why taxes are kind of uh, presumptively unjust and need to be really take a high degree of justification to raise taxes is because fundamentally the money that the market distributes to you, uh, that's your money. Like uh, you have entitlement to that because it, it came by virtue of the value that you contributed to society. And so, when we're in this pandemic situation and we're forced to actually identify, well, which workers are actually essential for our society to continue to function? Who can we do? Whose labor can we do without, at least on a temporary basis? And who do we really need? Um, and then we see that a lot of the people that we really need to keep our society functioning uh, are among the lowest paid workers in the country. So they're the people uh, working in Amazon warehouses, in, in grocery stores. Um, this is uh, socially... Uh, vital labor, um, along with a lot of different kinds of caring work, uh, and we see that the, the market doesn't necessarily uh, put a value on it in terms of uh, wages uh, equivalent to what it actually it produces for society relative to you know people sidelined marketing teams or, or hedge fund managers or or what have you. Um, so that was one element of it. Uh, the other, in terms of the cultural traditionalists and the kind of amnesia-laden nostalgia was kind of a reference to the the anti-undocumented politics uh, of, of Donald Trump and, and, and much of the right, um, which seems founded on, in my view, a degree of uh, ignorance, willful or otherwise, about um, the, the nature of, one, the fact that we are a part of a polity that expanded westward and kind of conquered territories that uh, that used to be fundamentally populated by um, 
Latino uh, Latino people, but but separately from that, uh, just the the last century of um, our agricultural market, which is which is to say that since the 1920s at least, farming in the United States has heavily depended on the labor of migrant workers from Mexico moving back and forth across the border, um, because basically that this is very grueling, uh, difficult labor in terms of picking fruit and, and picking. Uh, vegetables that uh, in order to supply this uh, this produce at, at the prices that Americans have gotten used to requires, you know, uh, having a very pliable labor force. And the differential between labor opportunities in America and Mexico are such that you have this population that is willing to do this labor. And so basically for a long time, it moved back and forth seasonally from Mexico to the United States. And then when we hardened our border, one of the ironies of the, the border militarization policies of the last couple decades is it actually made it uh, difficult for these seasonal workers to move back and forth. Um, and so we ended up with this permanent sort of population of undocumented agricultural workers. According to some estimates, 75% of crop hands in the United States are undocumented. Um, so this is a, a large population. And the, the irony that I point to in the piece is that Donald Trump's Department of Homeland Security has declared these workers essential. Uh, and so uh, they are simultaneously saying that that you can be deported at any time and you do not belong in this country. And also, uh, please show up to work, even though it puts you at risk because we can't really feed ourselves without you. Um, and so, this is a way in which it's sort of exposed uh, kind of you know tensions in the ideology. But if you but but Eric, um, if you further that irony that you just referred, if you further that irony, um, doesn't it extend to the fact that um, they are. Those workers you just said are deemed essential are the, among the last to receive any type of medical care if, if they were to contract COVID nineteen. Yes, uh, so that's another element of it. Is that um, I mean a, a broader aspect of the pandemic is also the way in which it highlights uh, our interdependence as people. You know, I think um, depending on there's different versions of it, but but there is a very individualist strand of uh, conservative ideology. Um, that is, you know, in tension with the fact that uh, when you have a contagious disease, denying health care to an undocumented person puts everyone around that person at, at risk, uh, including native born, including whatever. And separately from that, you know, if a if the disease were to have an outbreak on a on a major farm um, and then you have the labor force uh, reduced, then that potentially threatens, you know, our ability to uh you know, keep uh, our groceries shelves and, and produce sections uh, supplied uh, to a point where, you know, uh, it's affordable for everybody. Now, when you talk about conservatism, are you interchanging that with uh, Republican orthodoxy? Are those the same? Or are they slightly is there a variation of those? Yes, yeah, so, uh, obviously, all these terms are contested. And I don't mean to, um, I think there are a lot of people who identify as conservative who don't subscribe to you know, everything that the Donald Trump or, uh, or the Republican party says. And, um, you know, I think that the general inclination towards, uh, having skepticism about making significant changes because we can't anticipate the downsides and having respect for tradition and whatever, um, you know, this is conservatism takes different forms in, in different contexts. We're seeing right now, uh, just this week, the, the conservative prime minister, of uh, the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, um, 
after a battle with coronavirus, uh, finally left the hospital yesterday and gave this speech in which he referred to the National Health Service, uh, which is Britain's socialized medical sector, uh, completely socialized, not just single payer, but the government owns all the hospitals. He referred to the NHS as the nation's greatest asset. Um, and so it's clear that the meaning of conservative obviously you know, differs bearing on context. In United Kingdom, the conservative position is that uh, we should have socialized medicine. Um, so I'm, I'm referring specifically to uh, movement conservatism, uh, the, the conservatism uh, that arose with Reagan and that is really um, consolidated among the, the professional uh, Republican uh, class, the, the people who are staffing the administrative agencies, the judges that are being put on, on the bench, um, and then, uh, you know, Trump himself uh, in, in certain respects. Mm -hmm. and, and talk, um, if you would, about the market as an apolitical force dictated uh, impartially by an invisible hand. Talk about that irony, if you would. Sure. Um, yeah, so basically, in my view, the markets fundamentally are creations of the state um, because in order for an economic market to work, you need to have uh, an agreed-upon currency that people are going to use. You need to have agreed-upon laws. Um, and that all requires the functioning of a, a state. Um, and similarly, corporations are... Uh, you know, creations of the state. They're based on our limited liability laws that allow them to operate. And so that's the very basic level in which fundamentally this is a politically determined sphere. Um, and separately from that, uh, you have now in, in this crisis is sort of an exposure of more uh, direct ways in which this is a political sphere. So we have a situation where we have this major crisis and we have government entities, the, the Federal Reserve, fundamentally a, a public entity, has um, taken it upon itself through its, uh, you know, legislative authority, but still to stabilize asset prices, stabilize uh, the stock market through a variety of mechanisms, including some that are unprecedented. So in the last couple of weeks, the Federal Reserve normally uh, is the bank that serves all banks. So it, it, it lends money to banks, which then lend money to uh, the real economy, um, quote unquote. But, uh, for the first time it started directly buying debt issued by U S corporations. So it's, it's, we have a public institution directly financing, uh, picking which companies it's going to provide, uh, artificially cheap capital to artificially cheap in, in, in loans. Um, and so we're seeing here that this is fundamentally, you know, who, who wins and who loses is, in part determined by political decisions. Um, it's just that it's not very uh, democratic political decisions uh, at, at this point. Congress has played a role, but the Federal Reserve and these technocratic institutions have a lot of discretion. Um, now, American trajectory from 1776 to fledgling nation to 1945, the, the global superpower notwithstanding, um, has there been a faster trajectory of viewing undocumented workers as some sort of, you know, threat to the nation to becoming indispensable. Have, have we had a faster turnaround? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm not sure, fast turnaround. Uh, no, they, they, how they went from being right, a right. threat to the nation to being yeah. deemed essential. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 this is, that sort of has been a kind of a recurring uh, pattern in, in our history as far as um, basically having this, you know, exploited population. I mean, and, and one can draw analogies, uh, you know, to slavery uh, as far as for most of our nation's history, we've had uh, a class of people below the level of citizen who perform labor that uh, is, I think, coded in our culture as is somewhat degraded or or lower, um, but is fundamentally essential to the functioning of the economy. And, and those uh, individuals are have limited political rights or no political rights. Um, and so, obviously, for uh, a long time, that was uh, you know African American slaves. Um, and in the 20th century, it's often been this uh, Mexican migrant population, which we have had policies to facilitate their entrance to the country when we've needed them. So during World War II, we had a major, uh, we, we encouraged them to come in because, in part because we lost so many workers uh, to the, the war overseas. Um, and then once our need for the labor has settled down a little bit, and there's a political reaction to you know, we're getting sort of discomfort with this population that speaks a different language or is different. There's a xenophobic uh, upturn, and then we mass deport them. So we had under Eisenhower the Operation Wetback, where we, we brought these workers in, they did the work, and then we sort of ritually sent them away. Um, and then eventually we needed them again, and we, we facilitated letting them back in. But sort of pretty consistently, uh, we've had fundamentally, even with all the xenophobic backlash, even under Donald Trump, we, they haven't actually been willing to have the courage of their convictions to the point where the Trump administration would say, we are going to really punish employers who hire uh, these undocumented workers. We're going to make it so that it just does not make economic sense. We're going to ruin you um, if you do this. Instead, they've actually, you know, they, they don't enforce very much at all because a lot of their constituents fundamentally depend on this labor in order uh, to, to make uh, money. I was going to say to your last point that I could see the U.S. Chamber of Commerce not being pleased with any type of draconian policy to send these workers away. Yeah, no, I mean, that's there's was a longstanding tension within the Republican Party, which facilitated Donald Trump's election between uh, the um, elite sort of corporate establishment wing and much of the base on immigration. And uh, this has been a struggle for a very long time. After 2012, the establishment um tried to, uh, you know, I think somewhat earnestly felt, but also ideologically, that the future of our party is reaching out to Latinos and softening on immigration, um, that Romney lost because of his self-deportation comments, and the future of our party fundamentally is there are these um, often very socially conservative, uh, often Catholic Latinos that belong in a party of religious conservatism, and we just need to turn down the volume on uh, immigration we need to moderate on that. We need to pass reform. Uh, that was a, a dominant view. Trump represented the uh, rejection of that view, which came from a significant portion of the base, which said, no, uh, you know, fundamentally what conservatism is about is keeping uh, this country from from changing so radically, uh, you know, in, 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 in an ethnic way. Um, and Trump ultimately prevailed there. But there's still this unsettled sort of tension between the different wings of the party. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with writer Eric Levitz, and we're speaking about his recent piece in New York Magazine entitled The Coronavirus is Forcing the GOP to Tacitly Admit Its Ideology is Delusional. I'm staying just with the, the historical timeline of uh, undocumented workers momentarily. Uh, this latest round 
of, of how the sort of xenophobia and nativist impulses on the rise, it, was it a result of the post 9-11 fears? Is that where this really got going or was it prior to that? So the the movement um, against uh, immigration um, has was building up before 9-11. I mean, it was really a reaction in part to the reforms that were made under the, the Hart-Seller immigration reform, I believe, in 1965, which is when we finally uh, lifted these race-based quotas that were introduced into immigration in the early 20th century uh, during an uprising of, of, of nativism. Uh, those quotas were relaxed. Um, but uh, when that legislation was passed, the legislators themselves, uh, even you know the somewhat liberal ones, sort of assured uh, the public and, and believed that this would not fundamentally change um, the ethnic uh, composition of the country, that there was an idea there was introduced sort of family-based um, immigration that allowed you to, to uh, sponsor the immigration of your relatives. And actually, they thought this was really going to benefit the Irish Americans um, and, and, and really increase Irish American immigration. But they didn't really think through the rules very clearly. And it resulted in uh, actually very large amounts of um, immigration from uh, Asian, Latin American, African uh, nations, um, and did really pretty radically or, or rapidly um, decrease the white uh, share of the, the population. And this produced in, in some quarters and was demagogued in some quarters, uh, a nativist backlash that we really saw take hold in California in the 1990s, where Prop we had- 187. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and so we, we, we saw this happening sort of uh, there, uh, and, and we've seen how California has moved past that um, and into a, a, a different place politically that is much more uh, friendly to a multi-ethnic conception of American identity. Um, but uh, but so that was already pre-existing. But I agree that the 9/11 um, intensified and, and created. I mean, it created the basis for creating the Department of Homeland Security and for viewing the undocumented issue as a national security threat. Uh, so maybe broadening the appeal of this politics to people who weren't. Um, as activated or invested in, you know, the the concerns about growing Latino population, but who were susceptible to the idea that it's fundamentally dangerous that we don't have, uh, you know, this border secured. Who's coming in? It could be terrorists. It could be uh, gang members. Whatever. Um, it did. It did create more of the security impetus uh, in the the uh, anti um, undocumented politics. I want to talk about another aspect that you that you write in the piece, which is the federal government being bloated. And my question to you, in the modern presidency, and which I'm defining as beginning with Franklin Roosevelt, has there ever been an administration that left the size of the administration smaller than when he found it? Um, I would need to check the numbers, but I believe actually under the Clinton administration, the number of federal workers went down. Uh, but I agree that the, so the the um, there's a misnomer I think in terms of uh, there's an idea that 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 Ronald Reagan in, in the modern conservative movement uh, stood for smaller government and it certainly preached that um, but fundamentally uh, as I think you allude to that the federal government has fairly consistently grown larger in in terms of at least the amount of money that we uh, invest in in public. Uh, things, but it's just that um, what we're investing in sort of shifts. So Republicans, you know, under Trump have really, uh, I, I believe that the 
annual Pentagon budget, I, I would need to double check. I, I believe it's gone up by like 140 billion or something more than it would cost to establish free public college, uh, just in the amount that they've increased the annual appropriation to the Pentagon. Um, and so, and also Republicans support very large subsidies to agriculture, uh, some to fossil fuel industry. Um, and, and certainly uh, the, the border buildup itself, uh, the budgets of ICE and DHS have increased year upon year very, very much. And so um, I agree that sometimes the way that this is framed, it's less a question actually of big versus small government um, than it is, you know, what, what, what parts of the government we're investing in. But my point in the piece is that um, what we're seeing with this crisis is where we have really radically underinvested. So, you know, the, the most stark example is, is the fact that we can't get money into people's hands when we want to. Congress wanted to send everybody uh, who earns under $75,000 a year a $1,200 check immediately so that they could make rent and we could keep the economy stabilized while they figured out other relief programs. And we don't have the state infrastructure to do that. It's going to take the IRS weeks to get the checks into people's hands because we don't have the infrastructure set up. And similarly, state-level unemployment insurance offices are getting overloaded. Their computer systems are crashing um, because they aren't actually robust enough to handle the surge in demand um, and, and, and implement the policies that Congress wants them to. So in these very sort of basic ways, in addition to the public health response, which has been lackluster, and uh, the CDC has faced cuts uh, under Trump, what we're seeing that we kind of, you know, there, there's a conservative narrative that, oh, the, we have such a bloated administrative state, and then we're seeing that actually we're struggling to administer like very basic programs. You, you mentioned the word um, subsidies, which brings to mind that um, subsidies, uh, no matter how you look at them, government subsidies is by definition a policy um, fortified by socialist principles. Would that not be accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you talk to there are so many different definitions of, of socialist principles among socialists, you know, there can be very sectarian, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea that, that, uh, the idea behind a subsidy is that we, the public has an interest in this industry, um, succeeding, that we have a fundamental interest in having a strong agricultural base, uh, and, and being self-sufficient in our agriculture or having a competitive, uh, presence in, in global markets with our agriculture. And so we subsidize it. Um, and this was fundamental to the development of the United States. Uh, you know, we prospered in, 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 in no small part through um, what's referred to by economists as industrial policy, where the government says, you know, we're going to make sh this uh, industry one of our signature industries so that we can really export on global markets and dominate in that and build wealth that way. And we're going to direct government policy to uh, encourage the development of that industry. And we did that for manufacturing, uh, you know, for a couple of centuries with very high tariffs protecting uh, our industry so that, you know, uh, it could get built up. And so, so subsidies have always been a, a, a pretty big part of um, how the American economy operates. Now, I have friends who subscribe to a more libertarian orthodoxy. Um, if you were speaking to them right now, are, are they wrong for, for being concerned with the size of government? How would you frame an argument to them? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, I would say that there are um, there are insights to the libertarian perspective uh, in terms of 
you know, uh, so even in this pandemic, we're seeing that uh, that some action uh, by the government uh, in terms of uh, rolling out testing and, and, and masks uh, was a bit obstructed by regulations at the FDA that that uh, holds uh, a standard that I think prevented us from importing uh, tests that were available because they did not meet the the, the standards set out by the FDA. And so uh, it is always the case that there can be bad regulations. There can be bad government interventions in, in the market where uh, less uh, activity would uh, improve things. Um, and certainly, you know, uh, from my perspective, as, as someone who identifies on the left side of the spectrum, I think that, you know, uh, libertarians and, and, and people like myself have a lot of common ground on the, you know, military industrial complex and, and the ways in which, uh, you know, it is true that bureaucracies can become self-serving and uh, undermine, you know, the public good by upholding their own sort of interests. And, and that is obviously a thing that can happen. But when you get to the point of, of uh, fetishizing the market as this, you know, totally even playing field where we all meet ourselves, meet each other uh, as, you know, equal individuals contracting freely, um, that requires just a, a lot of fundamental denials about uh, the ways that the, the playing field has been made uneven uh, by economic, social, um, and political practice, you know, uh, the fact that women were disenfranchised for the the bulk of um, the first couple centuries of of our uh, republic, and, and when we were structuring our economy, is not uh, unrelated to the fact that our economy sort of presupposes that all of the care work that's done in the home, all the the labor that is required to raise a child, um, so that that child can eventually contribute to the economy, uh, that that is not priced. That that is not compensated. Uh, the, the the care work that's done to raise children, take care of elders, this is not priced by the market. I mean, it's not because it doesn't have value, and in fact, it's not because it isn't essential to the profit-making enterprise. You need this work to be done, but it's it's not priced because the social institutions uh, that the market was built around presumed that a woman was a fundamentally a servant of her family, a servant of her husband, and was. Uh, you know, duty bound to perform this labor for free. So that's just one example of the ways in which the market, uh, if we fetishize it, we're ignoring um, really fundamental realities uh, in a way that that is, uh, you know, reproduces injustice. You know, these these ideological beliefs that you articulate in your article for New York Magazine um, have maintained a momentum, I would argue, for several decades. And you sort of alluded to it, but why specifically is COVID-19 potentially the undoing of what has been accepted by many as mainstream um, conservative orthodoxy? Yeah, um, you know, I I don't want to... Uh I don't want to make any firm predictions because the fact is that you know the conservative orthodoxy has survived um, things that arguably should have uh, done it in before. I mean, the conservatism rebounded very creatively to the two thousand eight financial crash, which you know you would think would have undermined uh, some aspects of it. Um, but I would say that at least in this moment, anyway, it's forced uh, a reckoning by revealing just uh, how fundamentally arbitrary um, people's economic fates are. You know, in ordinary times, someone completely through no fault of their own can uh, 
injure themselves and suddenly find themselves unable to uh, earn the wages that they once did um, through a freak accident for which they have no responsibility. Um, and, and we tolerate that because if it happens just on an individual level or uh, you know, to, to discrete people, it can kind of be ignored as an exception. Um, but what this does is kind of reveal that, you know, we're all susceptible to this, this sudden shock, um, to the risk that through no fault of our own, our ability to uh, feed ourselves, our ability to earn market income and maintain uh, all our contracts, maintain our mortgage, maintain all these financial obligations, that all of us fundamentally uh, can be knocked off our ability to do that in, in, a, in a heartbeat. Um, and that in that situation, we need to decide what, wh who's, uh, whose financial interests matter uh, and whose do not. And it exposes the way that this is a fundamentally a political thing where we're seeing, you know, who, who gets help and, and who doesn't. The undocumented, uh, you know, are not given help. Uh, major corporations and their shareholders um, are given assistance very uh, rapidly. And then we have these gray areas and these debates of, you know, which industries are going to have help, which are not. But fundamentally, it reveals that there is a political underpinning to all of this. And it's, it, there's choices that, that we make. So there's, there's always been government intervention. And the question is, uh, for who? Yeah, I'm wondering um, if, if uh, the Democratic Party also bears some responsibility for the proliferation of the Republican tenets that your piece calls into question. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the um, you know it's it's a very uh, important uh, question, and I think that there's um, th there's no doubt the Democratic Party has participated in the uh, rightward drift of um, economic policy beginning in the uh, 1970s. You know, I think it's uh, a lot of people have forgotten what a different world ideologically we were in. Um, in even the late 60s and early 1970s, when you had a Republican Richard Nixon um, creating, you know, uh, the OSHA, the, the EPA. EPA, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, briefly, almost uh, established universal child care. He, the right pushed him back uh, to veto it at the very end. He also explored a guaranteed income program for a little while. There was actually a, a point in history where uh, Richard Nixon had hired two young operatives, uh, I believe Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld, to research uh, a basic income, basically the equivalent of giving uh, a $10,000 minimum income uh, to poor people. Um, and, and they wrote a positive sort of report on it. And then the politics of it kind of pretty quickly changed. But so, so we were in a different world. And, and beginning under Jimmy Carter, um, due to a variety of uh, you know, things from the stagflation crisis to increasing international competition uh, from, from Japan and Germany, putting pressure on American companies, and which then looks to reduce wages in order to re regain their competitiveness um, in international markets. A variety of different things led to uh, a movement towards a less labor-friendly, a more deregulatory, and a more um, uh, pro-finance industry uh, policy consensus uh, that ultimately um, held sway among both major parties for much of the late 20th century. Uh, and we saw even as recently, you know, as the Obama administration, where uh, in a time of, of, of acute crisis, um, they did provide more reliable and, and, and uh, fast uh, relief to the banks um, than they did to uh, underwater uh, homeowners who were in many cases 
um, you know, exploited and, and misled by by lenders uh, who got them into these balloon mortgages that they really shouldn't have taken out. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that uh, Democrats don't preach the same um, the same fundamentalist ideology with regard to the market. You know, Obama was was very clear on there was the, the moment in 2012 that got uh, a lot of controversy where he said, you know, uh, you didn't build that as far as saying that, you know, no individual uh, creates wealth by themselves, uh, you know, but they're supported by a variety of public investments and a community work that, that precedes them from, from schools to roads, uh, et cetera. Um, so Democrats don't preach this, this same ideology. And I think they are very much distinct from Republicans uh, substantively. Um, but it is the case that the Democrats have uh, embraced, have moved towards over the last, you know, uh, 50 years, and they're starting to move back out of it, but, but move towards a more... Um, market-friendly uh, ideology uh, or, or, or market-fetishizing ideology, I should say, um, than, than they had for a period in the mid-20th century when the New Deal consensus was still uh, sort of um, uh, ascendant. Now, I, I want to get your take on this, but um, one of the things that came to my mind when I read your piece is that one could make a comparison between the conservative ideology that you discuss and that bore some similarities to the Gilded Age at the turn of the century. And I wonder, um, would that be a fair comparison? Yeah, no, I, I think absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think if you're looking for the origins of conservative economic ideology, it, it began with uh, industrialists who... Uh, were nostalgic for the Gilded Age, who, who felt that that was, you know, not a gilded, but a, but a golden age of uh, enterprise where, you know, we had a sort of unusual situation in our country, which is that uh, we had these continent-spanning major corporations that uh, arguably had more robust uh, bureaucracies and ability to govern over space than um, our sort of underdeveloped federal government, uh, which distinguishes America, I think, from a lot of European countries where the state was always more powerful than the corporate sector. But so we had a period where you had these, you know, robber barons and otherwise, these, these barons of industry, um, really governing the country to a very significant degree by themselves. Um, and it was also a period of, of uh, rapid um, productivity increase and rapid uh, industrialization. And there were, you know, uh, economic advances happening, uh, but it was so unequitably distributed that, um, you know, actually over the latter half of the 19th century, I believe, if you look at records, uh, the median American, the working American, uh, I believe that, that records suggest that uh, the median American got shorter um, because they were eating less well, uh, because the wealth was so unevenly uh, distributed. Nonetheless, for the, the plutocrats, this was a golden era uh, in which they ruled, in which they felt they were making the country more prosperous and in which they felt uh, an incredibly exalted status. Um, and during the New Deal, they felt that their entire uh, worldview and, and their way of life was under attack in their status above all in society, um, that they had gone from being these great heroes to being uh, representative of, you know, the economic royalists uh, who Roosevelt decried. Um, and so they began organizing during that time to found uh, institutions like the Liberty League and these other early conservative institutions funding um, the work of the Australian, Austrian economist Frederick Hayek. Um, and, and beginning to develop this, uh, this conservative ideology that uh, was further refined and um, made its way into the, the modern 
uh, institutions of, of American conservatism. And so it, it absolutely is, in many respects, a Gilded Age ideology. Hmm. Um, how can one, for those who have not read your piece, what's the best way for them to find it? Uh, on your... You can Google it or you can go to um, NY Mag, uh, just NY Mag and then my name, Eric Levitz, and you'll find a, a page that has all of my uh, writings and you can scroll down. It's a, a, a few items down now. Um, but, uh, and I would recommend they, uh, they read New York Magazine's Intelligencer, um, uh, you know, for my article and others, we've got a, a really good team and, uh, yeah, we could use some subscriptions right now. So, uh, do check it out. Eric Levis, I, I want to thank you, uh, for joining me on the public morality. I, I have a feeling that, uh, we will be having you back on to talk about some of your thought provoking articles. Thank you so much, sir. Yep. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality especially during these tough times during the coronavirus. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have all come on different ships, but we are in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>